And as you're taking a seat, if you want to grab uh, your program and look at the very back, um, we in the, here at Mount Calvary Church have been in the process of uh, reworking our Constitution. And uh, coming up on uh, May the 11th, we're going to bring the first part to you uh, for approval. And in our current Constitution, it says that we need to read uh, our constitu- uh, the, the, the part that we're proposing to be changed to you two Sundays in a row. And so we're going to read this together. So follow along. There'll be a quiz after I'm finished. Uh, but, uh, but here on the back, you see the proposed amendment. And at the very bottom, you'll see the one that's current. So you see we're getting more specific. Um, but Article 7, Amendments. Uh, a, amending. This Constitution may be amended at any regular or special meeting by a ter- two-thirds vote of the members present and voting provided that the notification requirements of this article has, have been met. Changes to this Constitution must be implemented within six months after ratification. B, restrictions. Number one, Articles 3, 4, and Section 4 of Article 7 of this Constitution may be changed only after the following conditions have been met. These sections of the Constitution may be open for modification for a period not to exceed 12 months by a two-thirds vote of the members present and voting at a constitutionally called business meeting. The the modification period begins on the last day of the month following the month in which the vote was taken, and the modification period ends when the proposed change is ratified or 12 months have elapsed since the beginning of the modification period. C, notification. A copy of the proposed amendment must be made available to or delivered to each member of the church. Two, the congregation must be notified of the proposed change during each regular service for the four Sundays immediately preceding the scheduled meeting. And three, the proposed amendment must be described or read to the congregation during each regular service for the two Sundays immediately prior to the scheduled meeting. So that's uh, when we meet on on May 11th, we're going to vote on approving uh, Article 7 of of, uh, this change to our our Constitution. Also on that meeting, we are going to to vote on approval of two of our missionaries, the two missionaries that were with us, Fry's. The Fries and Tim Hawes and his, and his fiance Leander that were with us during missions conference, uh, our, our missions committee has, has voted to take them on as missionaries, and so we're going to bring them to you as well on that Sunday morning, uh, May 11th. So just wanted to, to remind you of that. Again, this has been uh, on emails in the bulletin for the last number of weeks, so if you have any questions, uh, you can see Pastor Dick or any of those who've, who've served on the on the Constitution Committee. They have served faithfully for many, many months, working long and hard on trying to make some changes. And in the next few months, we'll be continue to bring some of those changes to you for approval. Uh, one final thing, just want to say a big thank you uh, from Pastor Dick and Tom and myself for all of you who showed up yesterday to help around the church and at the missionary house. Thank you so much for giving of your time and uh, your talents. Uh, uh, for those who had talent to sculpt our trees and everything like that, uh, uh, Pastor Dick said he was trying to, uh, I think, get Noah's Ark out here in front of the nursery. It didn't quite work, but uh, uh, but uh, but thanks so much for for giving your time. And uh, yesterday morning, a lot got accomplished because many hands make light work. So hey, let's pray and ask God to just meet with us as we open His Word. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to to have Your Word in our hands. 
And Lord, we know that your word is active and living. It's powerful. It can penetrate our hearts and change our hearts. And Lord, our prayer this morning is that that it would just do that, 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 that you would speak to our hearts through your word and encourage us and challenge us and, and make us desiring to live more like you. Thank you that we have the privilege of having your word in our hands, and we know there are many people around this, this earth that don't have access to your scriptures, and forgive us when we take it for granted. And Lord, it's my prayer that, uh, that not only would we have your word in our hands, but that we would view it as our guidebook for life, that we would seek to live it out and bring you honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, I want to be honest with all of you. We're going to fail. I mean, let's be real. At some point in time, we are going to face failure, and probably even this week. Now, I know that's a good way to start off this morning, a real positive spin on on what we're doing. But but if we're really real, we're going to fail, maybe in our employment, maybe in our education. I was talking to a student this week and asking, hey, how how are your grades doing? And uh, he's experienced some failure in his grades and and hopefully uh, working to bring that up. Or even in athletics, we're going to fail. Uh, hopefully not our church softball team, though, right, guys? Uh, but, but we're going to face failure. And you know what? We're also going to mess up with our friends and our family. We're, we're going to fail. And so I guess the question is, how, how do we face that failure? And as I was thinking about failure, I, I came to the scary realization. And the thing that scares me about failure this morning is not failure in and of itself, but it's how our culture views failure. Our culture views failure. It it elevates failure as entertainment and not education. Uh, We laugh at failure instead of learning from failure. And this week, in our very state, we saw the clash of laughing and learning at failure when A Central York student asked Miss America to the prom. Watch this video clip. When a teenage boy asks a girl to the prom, the thing he usually fears is rejection, not suspension. Of course, most teenage boys are not asking Miss America to the prom when she visits their high school, and they're certainly not doing it when expressly told not to. But as Marley Hall tells us, That's exactly what has happened with a high school senior in York, Pennsylvania. When 18-year-old Patrick Barves asked reigning Miss America Nina Davaluri to the prom, her rejection was sweet. The school's response, not as kind. Central York High School suspended him for three days. It came off as disrespect, so that's, that's why I got suspended. The Twitter outrage was immediate. What's wrong with daring to dream, people asked. Where is the freedom of speech? It's not as though celebrity prom dates are unprecedented. Another Pennsylvania high school student asked singer Taylor Swift to the prom. She had a scheduling conflict, but did go out on a date with him. So, Justin. Justin Timberlake attended a Marine Corps ball after one lucky young lady's YouTube proposal went viral. 
But Central York school administrators say this is a story about rules, not dreams. The school had gotten wind of Patrick's promposal, and they told him not to do it. In a statement today, they said, as parents, we would be remiss not to give an appropriate consequence to our child for deliberately defying us so that our child understands that our rules should be followed and respected. Schools must operate in the same way. Despite his suspension, Patrick is still allowed to go to the prom, but his date probably won't be wearing a crown. Marley Hall, CBS News, New York. And I hope that you sense the tension between laughing and learning from failure in that clip. And, and Patrick made his rounds on all the talk shows from Fox News to NBC to ABC, and, 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 and he was made out to be the victim. Uh, Matt Lauer called him a hero. And, uh, and the failure we're talking about is not that Miss America said no, but that he failed to follow the rules. Uh, he failed to follow the rules that, that the school district heard what was going to happen, and they asked him, please don't do it. It's going to be distracting towards the reason they brought Miss America there to speak on some other important uh, uh, items. Central York School District made this statement. It's not our practice to discipline a student for asking someone, even Miss America, to a school dance. However, it's our practice to set expectations for student behavior, to communicate those expectations and rules to students and families, and to assure those rules are followed within our schools. See, the thing about this that was so interesting to me is that while many, many people wanted to laugh about this, well, it's just a kid being a kid, and sure, it was just a kid being a kid, but he was specifically told not to do it, and he failed to listen, and he got the consequences for that. And when the consequences were, were dealt out, everyone had a fit. And it's hard to believe that they would respond that way. Because, again, we like to be entertained by failure. We like to laugh at failure. We don't like to learn from failure. And the reality is education, I mean, failure can be educational. It's not always enjoyable, but it's educational. I came across J.K. Rowling, the very successful author of the, the Harry Potter books, and she was speaking to uh, Harvard University class of 2011 at graduation. And, and she was talking to them about all the difficult times in her life before she had her successful writing career. And this is what she said. She made an amazing statement about learning from mistakes. She said, rock bottom became the solid foundation on which I rebuilt my life. She learned from her failure. And this morning, I'm going to look at the life of the Apostle Peter. And I want to look how Jesus helped him to face his failure and how he learned from that. Now, before we look at his life, there's some important things to know about Peter. And first of all, he was born with the name Simon. And, uh, uh, he was given that name at birth, but we know a little later Jesus helped, um, maybe took pity on him that his name was Simon. No, uh, Jesus changed his name to Peter. And, and, and so when you see Simon or Peter, we're talking about the same man. And he was, he was a fisherman. He lived in the city of Capernaum with his brother Andrew, and, and they had a fishing business. And, and, and Peter was your average sailor who met an amazing savior. He was just in Capernaum, living his life, fishing, and one day, Jesus came to town. 
And when Jesus came to town, he, came, he did what he normally did on the Sabbath. He went to the synagogue, and Peter was there. And on that, Sunday, on that Sabbath, Jesus was preaching and teaching, and he even drove a demon out of an individual. And after the service was over, Peter went up to Jesus and said, hey, come back to my house for lunch. And Jesus came back to Peter's house, and, and once he arrived at Peter's house, he, rec- he realized that Peter's mother-in-law was sick. She had a very high fever, and so Peter healed her. And she got right up instantly and helped prepare the meal and serve the meal. And so Jesus spent some time at Peter's house, and word had traveled through Capernaum of what happened at the synagogue and what happened at Peter's house. And by nightfall, all the sick people in town were gathered outside of Peter's house, waiting for Jesus to do something. And Jesus came out, and he touched all, every sick person, and he healed them. And he drove out many demons from different individuals. And the town was amazed that Jesus was with them. And he did all these miracles. And so they did what probably what we would do. They asked him to stay. Jesus, please stay. Don't go. And Jesus said, you know what? I need to go and continue to preach in other towns. But a little later, Jesus was back along the Sea of Galilee. And, uh, and Peter was there fishing. And, and he was teaching. And, and Jesus wanted to use his boat. And at that moment... Uh, when, when Peter saw Jesus again and, and along the Sea of Galilee, Jesus asked Peter to follow him. And Peter dropped everything. He left behind loved ones and his livelihood to learn from Jesus and to follow him. And from that point on, G- Peter traveled with Jesus. And so we see Peter was one of the first ones that Jesus called to follow him. And he left everything behind, and he followed along with him. And so this morning, we're going to look at Peter's life, and we're going to go through a few passages in Luke till we get to John 21 and see how he faced his failure. Uh, But in Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 20, we see Jesus addresses the ultimate issue with not only Peter, but it's the ultimate issue that we need to face. And it's the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Luke 9, verse 18 says, Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, Who do you say I am? And Peter answers, God's Messiah. You know, for months the disciples have been following Jesus. They've listened to his preaching. They've watched him perform miracles. Jesus gave them an up-close and personal view of his real identity with the hope that they would recognize he was the Savior and put their faith in him. So they got to see Jesus up close. They got to see his identity up close. And the time had come for Jesus to ask them the direct question, who do you say I am? But before he got to asking them the question, he asked a general question. He said, hey, who do the crowds say they am? What is the word on the street? Who do people believe that I am? And it's interesting. We see uh, that the crowd gives some wrong answers to the question. And the disciples share some of them. One of the answers that the crowd thought was that Jesus was John the Baptist. And it makes sense because many people in Galilee 
had not met John, but only heard stories about him. And the stories that they heard about John sounded like the same stories that they heard about Jesus. They both had large followings. They both were present at the same baptism. They both preached the same basic message about the kingdom of God. And so it's natural for maybe them to be confused and say, hey, Jesus sounds a lot like this guy, John the Baptist. We've never met him, so maybe, it's, maybe Jesus is John. Some other people said, well, Jesus is Elijah. And every good Jew knew that the book of Malachi told about a prophecy of God sending Elijah back to the nation of Israel. And so pious Jews were waiting for that. And the truth about that scripture in Micah 4 or 5 was that it was actually talking about John the Baptist. It was talking about the prophecy about John the Baptist coming. And we know that in the beginning of Luke that Gabriel appears to Zechariah and he says, you're going to have a son, you're going to name him John, and he's going to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And he's going to prepare the way for Jesus. But some pious Jews, some of those good Jews that knew the Old Testament from front to back, they just thought that this was Elijah. And it makes sense. They both performed some similar miracles. They both gave bread to people, and they both healed a dead woman's son, raised him from, from the dead. So that makes sense. And so others said, well, he was another prophet. Some said Jeremiah, others said Moses. Others weren't sure exactly who, which prophet he was. They just knew that he was a good man, that they were in the presence of someone great. And so when, the crowd, when they asked, hey, what did the crowd say about me? They had all kinds of answers. You know what? The same is true today. The same is true today. Many people recognize something special about Jesus. They respect his teaching. They admire his life, but they deny his deity and refuse to worship him as Savior and Lord. The same is so true today. And you know what? It's always interesting to hear what people say about Jesus. And if you want to have a spiritual conversation with someone, a good place to start is to ask them, hey, what do you think about Jesus? Who is this Jesus? It's a great way to start a conversation. And we see the crowd had many, many different ideas, and our world has many different ideas as well today. But after they give the crowd's answer, we see Peter gives the right answer. And he says, God's Messiah. Jesus asks his disciples the most important question uh, that we all need to face because the answer to this question determines our destiny. Heaven and hell hang upon how we answer this question. The Bible says that the free gift of eternal life is only for those who believe in Jesus. And so, so when, we, when Jesus says, who am I? That's an important question for all of us to answer. And it's not surprising that Jesus, I mean, that, that Peter here is the first one to answer. Jesus asked the question and Peter speaks up. And Jesus was bringing his disciples to the point of personal commitment. It didn't matter what others were saying about him. It really mattered what they believed about him. And so he asked the question, and Peter speaks up. He was definitely the most outspoken of the group. He, he was the one that served as the group's spokesman. And, and if, if you know anything about Peter, Peter often, often had something to say. And it was often the wrong thing at the wrong time. I think we can all identify with Peter at some point when we say the wrong thing at the wrong time. But at this important, 
occasion and this important question, he answered absolutely correctly. He said, you are the Messiah. And Messiah means anointed one, the one chosen by God or the one dedicated for a sacred duty. And many prophets, priests, and kings were anointed to lead Israel in the Old Testament. But throughout the Old Testament, God continued to drop hints that one day he would send the greatest prophet, the highest priest, and the mightiest king of all to deliver mankind from sin and death. And so the people of God waited in hope for the ultimate Messiah. And when Jesus asked them the question, who do you say I am, Peter answered correctly, you are the Messiah. You are the anointed one, the chosen one of God who came to bring salvation from sin. Peter had been with Jesus from the beginning of his ministry. He watched him demonstrate his power over demons and disease and death. He watched him speak to the wind and the waves and see, see, them calm, see Jesus calm them. And because he had seen all of that, he considered all of that, and it was clear that he was God's, that Jesus was God's Messiah. Peter is stating God selected Jesus for the sacred service of bringing salvation to everyone who believes in him. Peter answered correctly. Peter had investigated all the details and all the information. He made a rational decision. But you know what? It just wasn't a rational decision based on all the experience and all that he saw. In Matthew 16, 15, and 18, Matthew tells about this same encounter. And listen to what he says. He says, but what about you, Jesus asked? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my Father in heaven, but my, by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So here in this passage of Scripture, not only does Jesus give Simon a new name, Peter, he calls him Peter, a small stone. He says, and on that small stone, on that rock, on that foundation, I'm going to build my church. And the foundation that Jesus was talking about was Peter's confession. He said, you know what I'm going to build my church on? I'm going to build my church on the rock that Jesus is the Messiah, that he came to save the world from sin. And so Jesus changes his name to Peter. And it tells us in this, in this passage that, that not only was Peter just looking at all the rational facts and information about what Jesus did, but it said God had led him to answer, you are the Messiah. God's Spirit worked in his life and revealed to him that he was the Messiah. Only the Spirit of God is able to persuade us that Jesus is the Messiah. It persuaded Peter. Even though he saw all the miracles and heard all the teaching, God worked in his heart. It was not only that, that, those, that, that information, that rational information that he kind of processed, but it was God at work in his heart. And and the question that all of us need to answer this morning is the same question that Peter answered. Who do you say Jesus is? It's a question we don't want to fail to answer correctly. And my hope and prayer is that the same scriptures and the same spirit that, that, that convinced Peter that Jesus was the Messiah has convinced us the same. That every one of us in this room this morning, when asked, who is Jesus, we can say he is the Messiah. He is my Lord and Savior. He came to deliver me from my sin, and I have a relationship with him. It's the ultimate issue. 
And Peter answered the ultimate question with the right information, the right answer. And so that's the ultimate issue. Let's look at some un, unexpected information and, and continue on in Luke chapter 9. And, and after, after Peter answers and gives the right answer, right answer to Jesus of the question, he says some pretty unbelievable, some pretty shocking information. And the first thing he says is, you know what? I'm going to suffer, die, and rise again. Verse 21, Jesus strictly warned them not to tell anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed. And on that third day, he'll be raised to life. You know, as soon as the disciples knew who Jesus was, Jesus began to tell them what he came to do. He said, you know what, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and three days later, I'm going to rise again from the dead. And the amazing thing is Jesus swore his disciples to silence. He told them that. He said, but don't tell anybody else. And I don't know about you, but I'm, when I see that, I ask the question, well, why, why would Jesus say that? Why would Jesus tell his, his disciples not to tell anybody? And I think the reason is they were just beginning to understand who Jesus was, and he didn't, they didn't have a clear idea of what he had come to do yet. So Jesus didn't want to give them to give people misleading information. It's kind of like as a parent, if you ask your child to do something. If you give your child some instructions to do something, and in the middle of the instructions, they run away and try to complete the task, what's going to happen? They're going to try their best, but at, when you go and follow up and see what, uh, what had happened, you're going to realize that it wasn't completed the way that you wanted it to be completed because they didn't listen to all the information. They didn't have all the information. And I see, I think the same is true here with the disciples. When, when Jesus revealed to him and, 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 and Peter said, you are the Messiah, they, they, were, they were coming to understand who Jesus was, but they weren't exactly sure what he came to do. And instead of getting mis, giving misleading information, he wanted to make sure they understood before they went and told anybody else. And waiting for instructions was important because the Jewish people were looking for the wrong kind of Messiah. They were looking for the Christ who could come and deliver them from Roman rule and set up a new, a new state that was governed by God's law. So they weren't looking for the same kind of Messiah that Jesus came to be. They were looking for someone to deliver them from the oppressive Romans. And if the disciples didn't wait until they had a better understanding of what Jesus had come to do, their message would have gotten confused with the politic of the, t of the days. And they would have been misunderstood. And so Jesus says, wait. Wait till you understand it a little bit more. Because once they had and understood all the necessary information and received the, the necessary training from Jesus, we see in Luke chapter 24, he sends them out to tell the world. They just weren't quite ready at this point in time. They needed to learn a little bit more. They needed to understand the message a little bit better. And so he tells them what the gospel is all about here. He says, I'll be rejected, I'll be afflicted, I'll be crucified, I'll die, and I'll resurrect. And can you imagine the disciples' response to this answer? Can you imagine their response to when they heard this and they said, God's grand plan of salvation includes this? That doesn't make any sense. 
what have I gotten myself into? But Jesus told them to keep quiet until they fully comprehended God's complete plan of salvation. That's the first amazing bit of information that, that Jesus told them in Luke 9, 21 and 22. Another amazing piece of information that, uh, that uh, they find out is, is not only that, but, but that Satan will test Peter and Peter will fail. In Luke 22, verses 31 and, and 34, Jesus informs the disciples that Satan wanted to put their, their faith to the test, starting with Peter. So he tells them, hey, you know what? I'm going to go through some trying times. Jesus says, you know, I'm going to go through some trying times. I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again. But you know what? You're going to go through a test too. You're going to be tested as well. And in verse 31 in chapter 22 of Luke, it says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. And so Jesus informs the disciples that Satan wanted to put their faith to the test, starting with Peter. And to sift them like wheat, uh, what he's talking about, in other words, Satan wanted to toss them into the air like the farmer tosses grain into the air, wheat into the air, and see if the, uh, the, the wheat will fall and the shaft will blow away. He wanted to see if the disciples were solid enough to land back on the ground, but maybe they'd be scattered by the winds of persecution. And Satan wanted to see if they'd be like Judas, who got blown away and belonged to Satan forever. And so here, Satan gets permission from Jesus to put the disciples' faith to the test to see if they'd fall into sin and fail. And it wasn't shocking that Satan started with Peter, he was their leader. Because if he could destroy their faith, he could destroy all of the disciples' faith. And so in verse 32, it, Jesus says, But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And so here, not only does Jesus say, You're going to be tested, and it's going to start with you, Peter. But I've prayed for you. I've prayed for you as you face that test. And he specifically prays that Satan's faith would not fail. And I think it's interesting as Jesus is praying for Peter, he doesn't pray that Satan would leave him alone. He doesn't pray that he'd have an easy life and he would never go through any difficulty. He prays that his faith wouldn't fail. And then Jesus lets Peter know some bad news. His failure was forthcoming. His failure was forthcoming, that he was going to fail Satan's death and, and turn his back on Jesus and deny him. And we know that because in verse 32 it says, and when you have turned back, it lets us know he had turned away. And so Jesus says, you're going to fail and it's coming soon. But he follows up with some good news and says that, you know what, Peter, your failure isn't final, it's not fatal. It's not final and it's not fatal. Though he would return from Jesus at some point, Peter would recognize his sin, repent, and return to Jesus. And then God would use him to strengthen the believers. His faith would not fail. But look how Peter responds to this, uh, this bit of information, this, this unexpected information. Verse 33 says, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. In essence, Peter says, Jesus, you're wrong. You're wrong. Now, this is the same guy that said, you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one that is sent uh, to deliver the world from their sin. You're the perfect Son of God, and it's the same guy that just says, Jesus, you're wrong. Jesus, you're wrong. I'm not going to deny you. I'll go, to you to pr I'll go with you to prison or, un or to the very end of my life, to death. 
Peter says, I'm not going to need to make a comeback because I'm never going to leave you. And it's interesting. Uh, Here we see Peter's failure wasn't final or fatal, but it was fast. Peter's statement sounded great, didn't it? He was the first disciple to say, you know what, I'll go with you to prison. I'll go with you to death. And in Luke 22, just before that, they're in the upper room. They're having the Last Supper. And just before this conversation, what are the disciples doing? They're they're arguing about which one is the greatest. And Peter is trying to show Jesus, hey, I'm your guy. I'm number one in line. I'm the greatest because I'm going to go with you to prison, to even death. Open mouth, insert foot. Peter was good at that. His failure wasn't final or fatal, but it was fast. Instead of asking God for strength to say no to sin, to, to withstand Satan's test, he basically states, God, I am strong enough. I, uh, I got this under control. You and me, we're good. I'm following you no matter what. No matter what. And Jesus answers him in verse 34 and says, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times. You'll deny three times that you know me. And, and Jesus clearly spells it out for Peter. He's, he's not getting it. He said, Peter, I'm going I'm to test you and you will fail. And he gives him the specific. Before the day's over, you'll deny me. Not once, not twice, three times. Three times. Chapter 22 of Luke in verses 44 to 62, we see it says this, Then seizing him, Jesus, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter, Peter followed at a distance. And when some had there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you are also one of them. Man, I'm not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. And Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter, and then Peter remembered the words of the Lord that the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you'll disown me three times. And he went outside, and he wept wept bitterly. Jesus had just been betrayed by Judas. He had led the, uh, the temple guard to the, to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus was just arrested, and he was taken to the high priest's house. He had just been betrayed by Judas. And Peter, we see, is stealthily followed at a distance, and he snuck into the courtyard, and he found himself in a scary situation, right? Face-to-face with a servant girl. Face-to-face with a middle school girl. Talk about a scary situation, right? Now, I don't know about, uh, you know, th- th- this was just uh, a servant girl, a mid- you know, a, a, basically a middle school girl. She recognizes him as one of Jesus' disciples, and he does what everyone does when confronted and called out by a middle school girl. Lies. Peter, Peter says, I don't know him. You're wrong. And, and, you know, and the interesting thing is, I'm sure that this servant girl, this, this young servant girl had access and the ear of all the religious leaders, that they listened to everything she said, and she could instantly get into their presence and tell them what's what. She wouldn't have access to them. They wouldn't even listen to her. But when asked by this servant girl, Peter says, I don't know what you're talking about. 
And he lied to keep his presence a secret. A middle school girl spots him. He's hanging out with a middle school girl. I, I hang out with a sixth grade girl quite often. I live with one, Haley. And because I live with a middle school girl, I'm often in the presence of more middle school girls. Uh, a few Sundays ago, I looked down my row, and it was me and all middle school girls. And I'm like, how did this happen? Uh, but the reality is, as, as scary as a situation that is, they, they may impact my sanity, but they can't determine my safety. I mean, I could take them. I mean, it takes four of them to outweigh me. Uh, but here's this, I mean, this is the ridiculousness of this, of this situation. Peter is standing with this, with this young servant girl, and she says, hey, you're, you're with, you were with Jesus. And he was scared by that question, and he didn't want her to know the truth, like she was going to do something about that. He says, no, I, I, I don't know him. And from one lie leads to two more lies. He denies knowing Jesus. And after the third time, the rooster crows, and Jesus turned and looked right at Peter, and Peter sprints away sobbing. Can you imagine getting that look from Jesus? I often think that maybe Jesus was looking at him and with great disappointment in his eyes. And we've all gotten that disappointed look, right? Uh, whether as a child our parents gave us that look when we acted out in public, or even as a husband we get that look from our wives when we say or do something we shouldn't have done. But you know, as I was looking and reading and studying this week, I don't think maybe that look was a look of disappointment. I think it was a look of compassion, a look of love. And when Jesus looked at Peter with those compassionate, loving eyes, he recognized what he did. Here's this guy that loved me and was willing to go to the cross for my sins, and I can't even tell the truth to a middle school girl. And he sprinted away sobbing. He ran away. And it's a good thing the story doesn't end there. Because we see an unbelievable invitation at the end of this story. And in Luke 21, it's, I mean, John 21, it's been a, it's been a while. And, and, and we've been looking at the last days of our Lord here this week. And, and so we're looking at a, a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. He had resurrected from the dead, and he encounters Peter in Luke uh, in John chapter 21. And here we see Jesus restores and reassures Peter. And in verses 15 to 17, it says, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. And again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And the third time he said to them, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. You know, pre-resurrection, Peter was pretty loud and proud. That's just his personality. He was loud and proud. He was quick to speak and slow to listen and slow to think. And not only was he the first one to claim Jesus was the Messiah, but he was quick to correct Christ and say he wouldn't die, that he, that he would rather die with Christ than deny him. He sounded devoted, but we knew he deserted Jesus. And while other disciples were mentioned at being at the cross, there's no mention of Peter being there. It seems that he's dropped off the scene. He's disappeared from sight from a time, 
only to reappear after the resurrection. But that's, pre, that's pre-resurrection Peter, loud and proud. Now we see post-resurrection Peter, humbled by his failure and honest about his feelings. When Jesus asks him three times if he loves him, And it's well known in verses 15 and 16 that Jesus and Peter are using two different forms of love. Uh, When Jesus asks, hey, do you love me? He's saying, hey, are you committed to me? Do you you choose to be committed to me? It's a a high volitional kind of love. Uh, Do you choose to, to, to selflessly and sacrificially follow me? And do you love me unconditionally, sacrificially? And Peter answers, talking about a love that refers to friendly or emotional love based on affection. And so Jesus questions Peter's loving commitment, and Peter affirms his loving friendship. Peter says, I mean, Jesus says, hey, do you love me? Are you fully committed to me? And, and Peter says, well, we have a great loving friendship. This is a different Peter. This isn't the Peter that says, of course, I'll go to the end with you. He says, says, you know, as much as I can, you know, I love you with with my heart, with my affection. We have a good friendship. And you know what? That was enough for Jesus. That was enough for Jesus. Because he responded to, to the question three times by directing him to minister to other followers of Christ. You see, Jesus restored Peter and gave him great responsibility. Peter was to act as a pastor providing spiritual care for other believers. Peter was honest, and when Jesus asked him the question, he said, I love you to the best of my ability. I love you with my, with my affections. With, uh, we're great friends. And through Jesus' three questions of Peter, he makes sure that Peter loves him, and he's comfortable that Peter's committed to following him, and he gives him some ministry instructions. And the way that Jesus responds to Peter's rejection is very reassuring. And it teaches us one important thing that I want us to catch this morning. It's this. Failure isn't final. God gives us second chances to serve him. Failure's not final. God gives us second chances to serve him. Those who love Jesus are going to fall and fail into, uh, are going to fail and fall into sin. But sin doesn't have to sideline us from service. And you know what? I think that's what Satan wants us to believe. That once we fall, that once we fall into sin, we're done. God's through with us, and that's not, the, tr- that's not the, the truth. Now, it's important to realize, and I believe this, sin has consequences, and those consequences diminish our opportunities, but it doesn't destroy our opportunities to serve God. They may diminish some of those opportunities, but it never destroys our opportunities to serve God. Jesus appeared to Peter privately after his resurrection in Luke 24, where many pe- people believe that in that in that. In that uh, uh, instance, Peter responded to, to, to Jesus, and he repented of his sin, and he, and he said, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I, forgive me, I, I'm following you. I was wrong. And now in John 21, we see Jesus restores him to ministry. Peter recognized his failure. He repented of it. He returned to Jesus, and Jesus restored him to ministry. And if we're honest this morning, all of us in this room have struggled with sin at one time or another and found ourselves in a situation where we failed, we blew it. And because of that, we're, we buy the lies of the evil one that says, you know what, God would never want to use a failure like you. 
mean, you just turned your back on him. You just disobeyed him. He would never want to, to use you. But the amazing thing about God is that he chooses to use imperfect people to fulfill his perfect plan. Our capacity for ministry is not based on our inadequacy, but on God's sufficiency. God loves to use the weak things of this world to do great things for him. Because when they look at us, they'll recognize it can't be coming just from that person. It's something supernatural. God wants to use us, failures and all, in ministry to encourage others. And the choice is just up to us. Because you see, sometimes God will use our failures, and if we use failure as an opportunity to learn and to grow, to help other people learn and grow, so they don't need to make the same mistakes as we do. But I think as we look at Jesus and how he interacts with Peter this, in this passage in, in, in John 21, it tells us this one thing. Failure isn't final. God gives us second chances to serve him. And this morning, it's my hope and my prayer that we just don't hear it, but that we believe it and we get busy applying that to our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the opportunity we have to open up your word this morning. And thank you for this great reminder that that even in the midst of our failure, you're at work in our lives. And sometimes you use those failures for our, uh, as a way for us to grow. And, and, and failure is not always enjoyable, but it can be educational. And Lord, I pray that uh, as we look into our own lives, I pray that we wouldn't buy the lie of Satan. That, uh, that when we think about, well, I blew it here, or I, 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 I didn't follow God in this area of my life, so I, I can't serve him and I can't do this, Lord. I pray that we wouldn't buy the lie of the evil one. Lord, thank you that you're a forgiving God. Thank you that in the midst of our failure, you forgive us and that our failure isn't final and that you give us second chances to serve you. And Lord, I pray that as we look into our own hearts and our own lives, that you would help us to identify those areas where we can serve you. And help us not to listen to the evil one that says, hey, you can't do that. Maybe an area that God's calling us to, to, to be involved and to serve him in, and, and Satan's trying to get us to say no. Thank you that even though we fail, you forgive and give other opportunities for service. Thank you for Peter's life, and thank you for what we can learn from your, uh, your interaction with him and how you restored him. And Lord, that gives us hope because we fail and we fall, but it doesn't have to be final or fatal. We can find forgiveness. We can be restored, and we can serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.